Before you dive into this exciting episode, I'd like to let you know about the Squash Playbook, your tactical blueprint for success. The playbook is written based on the most common solutions I have given to the people I coach over the last 20 years. It is the ultimate how-to guide for any squash fan, and you can grab a free copy right away by visiting squashplaybook.com or clicking on the link in the show notes. Are you freaked out by that hard-hitting hacker? Frustrated with running out of ideas against the relentless retriever? Want to close out matches more clinically when in the lead? Or do you need some mental tools to overcome bad calls by referees? These answers plus many more have been brought together all in one place for the squash community. The Squash Playbook is a practical toolkit that breaks down over 40 scenarios that are most commonly faced on the court. Each scenario provides the psychology and the strategy needed to get a positive result. Each chapter wraps up with the top six key points to keep things simple and practical. The aim of the book is to transform reactive players into proactive tacticians. I focus on breaking down complex situations into straightforward, effective strategies for those high pressure moments in a match. So why not grab your copy now and step onto the court next time with a clear head and a set of strategies to win those matches you know you're capable of. Please enjoy the show. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey squash community, hope everyone out there is doing really well. I am so delighted to have Laura Massara on the Squash Mind podcast series today. We had to split this into two parts. There was just so much we had to talk about, so many different avenues and topics and theories around the mind. And to be able to have someone as mindful and as deep thinking as Laura on the show today and in these two parts is just an absolute treat and an absolute honor for me. A lot of people I work with, a lot of the juniors really look up to Laura, really admire her and are trying to take leafs out of her book. And, you know, arguably she's one of the greatest British squash players of all time. Her CV is just phenomenal, fantastic. And what she's actually doing in her work now is just super inspiring as well. I, I just love having these chats with her. We have connected quite a lot over these chats and 
talked a whole bunch of different ways about the mindset, what things work for her, what deep dives she took in her career, how much she paid attention to the mind and working on it. So I think you're going to take a lot out of these two chats. And the reason we split it into two parts is there were so many topics that got covered in part one, which were which were good, insightful, and we went down a few little rabbit holes with them. But as we finished, we discussed that actually we didn't go as deep as we wanted. So we made it our mission to get on for a second recording and to take some of the key bits that she enjoyed talking about in the first part and to take a much deeper dive into the second part. So please do listen to them back to back if you can. I think you will find them links linked really well, really insightful. And as I said, we cover some of the topics in part one, but we take that huge deep dive into part two. So a quick little CV for Laura. She became the world number one in January 2016. She also won the British Open in 2012, becoming the first British male or female to win the title since 1991, so quite an achievement there. She became world champion in 2013 and also the first English woman ever to hold the world title and the British Open title. So yet again, another big feather in her cap in regard to her CV and her achievements. She is a three-time silver medalist at the Commonwealth Games and she got given the MBE in the 2020 New Year's Honours. So those of you who haven't come across Laura in the squash world, where have you been? First of all, I'm sure most of you have. And secondly, hopefully this really highlights a bit of her personal side, a bit of the side that you may not get to see if you just watch the matches and follow the tournaments and see her results. I think it really highlights some amazing things about her as a person, her deep thinking, her relationship with her husband, Danny Massaro, and and the way they talk about the mind and, and he's very big on on mindset and I'm lucky enough to have him on the Squash Mind podcast series as well and we've had a couple of really good chats. So this part one covers a wide range. We we do take some deep dives into the nature-nurture debate. Are you born with mental toughness? Do you grow it? What environment are you in to be able to grow it? Talking about her influences uh, in regard to her coaches that she's had throughout the years and what they brought to the party. Talking a little about her, a bit about her mindfulness and 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 what she does for her mind and how to how to have a bit of a, a softer approach in regard to how she approaches things. So I think it's it's going to be super insightful. This we go into a little bit of detail about her book, but we we go a lot deeper in in part two. So hope you enjoy part one. I for one have really enjoyed these two parts chatting with Laura Massaro. They are relatively deep and long, but I think that's good because that colors exactly what we want to do and really talk about the mind. So welcome to part one of my chat with Laura Massaro. Laura Massaro, welcome to the next uh, episode of the Squash Mind podcast series. How, how are you getting on? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. So, you know, I've been, I've been really feel honored and chuffed to be able to reach out to to players like yourself, you know, some of the highest performing players in the world to be able to get this access and have this type of chat on this platform. And and so thanks for your time. It is just, you know, I come away from these things feeling so motivated and inspired and, and rushing off to do new things. But um, where to start? I, I, I Looking back at your career, you know, completely, it's such a glitching career, you know, so many titles um, and not only titles, what, what I found interesting when I was doing a bit more research on your career, the, the ability to bounce back from setbacks as well. So, you know, it's quite, it's quite good to play from in front and have the confidence, but it seemed like you were able to bounce back quite a lot. But I'm keen to explore how much your mentality and mindset contributed to your success 
and what you did as a junior, what, what, what sports you did, what environment you were growing up in. And if you could reflect back as, as, a, as a youngster, how do you think this shaped your glittering career that you had? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the, the old argument, isn't it? Nature versus nurture and who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, there's far more intelligent people than me that will come up with arguments on both sides. But I like to think it's both, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in um, a fairly strict household, I'd say. Um, particularly my dad was was strict Um my mum was definitely a more loving one, more soft, um, which I think was great, was a great balance. And I think, you know, they they divorced and separated um, when I was younger. So they they would even say that now that, you know, growing up, you know, I, I've got a little bit of both my parents for sure. Um, definitely the loving side and softer side from my mum and definitely the steely determined kind of professional, um, orderly side from my dad. Um my dad was from an army background, so relatively strict, um, you know, little things like, you know, you get what you earn. His his motto was you get out of life what you put in. We got that drilled into us when we were young. Um, we always had to help around the house. There was always chores to do. Um, you know, he expected nothing less than than full effort. And it didn't go down well if there was, if there was, if that wasn't happening. Um, he expected kind of, you know, training and practice and return for giving up his weekends and his money um, for playing um, the, the sport um, that I wanted to play. And um, yeah, I think it really instilled a lot of, of discipline in me. Um, I think it was in, it was, and when I say a bit, a little bit more around the nature side, I think it was in me because um, my dad will say to this day that he brought me and my brother up identically almost. My brother's three years younger than me and he was hard and he was tough on me and he went down the same route with my brother and thought, mm. if I'm a girl and I can handle it, then he can handle it as a boy. And he he just rebelled basically it wasn't I don't think that it was that he couldn't handle it I think it was just he didn't want it he didn't want to put himself through this professionalism he didn't want to be training every night he didn't he just he just he just didn't want to do it and so it was just really interesting how they brought us up the same and and we didn't end up the same. <laughs> it's almost, almost like a, a social experiment there isn't it you know going right we're going to get in hindsight and I think um, there's, I think it's in Bounce or maybe it's in Outliers about um, a, a guy who basically married, he was, he was obsessed with chess and he wanted to bring up players and his kids in a chess environment. And he married someone and he had four daughters. It's the famous story of the four daughters. And yeah, he treated each one of them the same in the same routine. And yeah, they all slightly diverged the path. So it was almost like an experiment saying, hey, the environment is exactly the same, but it's people's characters and natures that, that might push them off in different paths. But just want to explore that a little bit more. Was there was there any pushback from yourself? Was there any um, not resentment, but was there any part of you at certain points were going, "Hey, this is too much. Like, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not into it." Because it sounds like that's what happened with your brother. Where were you at in regard to that? Yeah, um, I think there was a little bit in terms of internal turmoil um, at times, um, to the point where I would be you know, kind of doing my homework, my dad would pop his head in, you come into the gym, we're going to the gym. No, I've got homework to do. And then that he would close the door and have this inner turmoil of 
guilt perhaps and um, okay. expectation um levels within myself that were expected of me levels of what my dad expected of me and before I knew it I was packing my bag and off I was just going to the gym so it was a lot of that I think um and that's where I just wonder how much of that was my dad and how much of it was me because there was mm-hmm. a lot of you know my brother didn't have that my brother didn't have any guilt it was like nah dad I'm not coming and he didn't go whereas I just seemed to go <laughs> pack my bag and found myself at the gym and um <laughs> I think there was a little bit of inner turmoil um that was going on like a, you know that kind of oh should I go should I not you should go little devil on my shoulder going you should go to the gym um so I guess I guess there was that but overall I I wanted to do what I was doing and don't get me wrong I I I think because I was good, I was a good junior, um, particularly from probably under 14s onwards. Um, it helps when you're winning. It helps when you're, you know, occasionally losing tough matches and trying to beat that those girls that are on that that age group ahead of you slightly, and you want to chase them. It gives you. It gave me a target to aim for, and so I. I think the fact that I wanted to keep winning and I wanted to catch the people who were beating me um, also drove that a lot. So, you know, I, I don't know how much that played in kind of having that winning attitude as well. Yeah, it sounds sounds like you had a, a great little sweet spot where you got used to winning because that's a very important trait. And and, and the people I've interviewed and, and when I've done research on it, you've got to learn to win. You don't want to be, you know, continually being beaten up. But equally so, it also sounded like there was a bit of a stretch because you don't want to be winning without that challenge along the way. Because when you go into the big world and the big pond, all of a sudden it's a lot tougher out there. But it sounds like you, you really hit a sweet spot. And I'm curious to know what other sports did you play as a youngster? Was it when, when did you really focus on squash or did you feel that other sports lent to squash? Can you reflect back on that for me, please? Yeah. I mean, um, definitely with you, with your first question, that sweet spot was there probably because of the strength and depth within the women's, the, the junior girls game at that time. So I was always reaching up for the next level and then also getting like nibbled out on my heels from the girls below. Right. Um, so always wanting to stretch onwards. And that started through, you know, when, when I was 10, 11, I, I wanted to be the best in, in Lancashire. Mm-hmm. And then we sort of, birch, you know, ventured across to Yorkshire, wanted to try and be the best in the North. Like the Yorkshire girls were always so strong. And then obviously you start to become the best in the North. And I ventured down South and Alison would I'd go down south thinking I was the big I am and get my ass kicked and go back you know by Alison or Tina Ricks or someone you know before when you were maybe like 12 13 and um, come back up tail between your legs da, da, da. so it was always kind of trying to stretch and I always went there they never came here I mean I guess why would they because they were the best at you know 10 11 12 13 so we were always traveling down, you know, and that, and that was hard too, you know, that discipline and wanting to kind of try and make the most of it. And then in terms of other sports, um, I played every sport at school that I could really, obviously sporty, you're good. It's the best, the best lesson of the day. Um, PE. So I, I basically played every, yeah, basically every lesson that I could netball, hockey, cross country, did everything. Um, plus one outside of school and squash and Chorley Marlins until I was about 13 um, and then kind of yeah swimming gets serious quick and you have to start early morning so that didn't didn't go on but yeah decent swimmer and you know feeling quite good good for that so yeah 
Yeah, it's, it sounds like, well, that, that's two really great points you put there. And, and for me, that, that sounds so much about the environment, isn't it? You, you know, you are growing your confidence uh, in, in Lancashire, you know, getting better, come yeah. down, as I said, get, get, uh, get a bit of a whipping from, from the Southerners and go back and grow again. So that was obviously a tournament um, match play competitive environment. And then, yeah, like, like all the other sports and, and, you know, it's, it's very rare that this idea of early specialization, um, you know, you hear that the, you might've come across the Tiger Woods, Roger Federer story, you know, you got Tiger Woods who specialized early and Roger Federer, who was a bit more of a range, but also got to the, you know, right to the top of it. But I yeah. think a lot of people like the narrative and especially parents, like that narrative of early specialization, they go, oh yeah, you know, at, at three years old, you need to be dedicating to the sport and really going deep with it. But, you know, the more I've looked at it, and I think you might be in, in the same mindset, you know, you can actually borrow from different sports and experiences, how team sports bring in a different mindset. Do you think that was also a contributing factor to some of your mental toughness later on in your career? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think also it makes you really realize what your, what your strengths and weaknesses are. And, I, I really enjoyed playing team sports, but I got really frustrated when, you know, I could have a good match and we could lose or we could win and I'd have a poor match or one yeah. of my teammates wasn't working as hard as what I, you know, what you think you, you know, come on, put a bit of training in, put a bit of, when someone lets you down and, and some people are great at that. They want to kind of, you know, be in the fold and they want to have teammates to bounce off and they want to kind of do it as a team and win together, lose together, you know, did that. And, and I get that, but that wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't something that I really wanted and thought that was, was the way to go. So I think it made me realize an individual sport was for me. And, but I absolutely agree that, you know, when you get these early specializations, there's almost something a little bit lacking within the bodily functions and skills within your own body. And mm. let's not, let's be honest, Tiger Woods, Roger Federer, they're special. They're, they're your kind of Nicole Davids, aren't they, of the world and things like that. So um, it's really tough. And and I think that it's, it's hard to, to know that and things like that. So one really interesting part uh, that, that I'm trying to develop with, with my players is this idea of habits, routines, behaviors. And I'd like to ask what habits, routines, and behaviors have you built up over the years that you felt contributed to your really good mental success as a player? Uh, oh, that's, that's a tough one, I guess. Um, I love the, you know, I love to think about that kind of, you know, doing what you said long after the feeling as the mood that you said it in has left you is a big thing. Um, awesome. And I've always sort of thought that part of one of my talents as such, if, you know, you've got Norel Shabini who can, you know, is talented with the racket. I always thought that one of my talents was, was doing that, sticking to what I said I'd do long after the, the mood I said it in had okay. gone. Can you, um, can you give an example of that or, or explain a little bit more? Because I, I love the way you put it. And it'll be really interesting to know if there's anything that comes to mind when you when you say that. Just just mainly um, when you talk about routines and um, being able to stick to a routine day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Mm. Um, you know, when I, even towards the end of my career, when I was working with Mark Campbell and he, uh, he he used to send his programs through really kind of prescribed um, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So I'd have, you know, Monday to Sunday and it was all written down, every little thing. And, and, and he used to get actually a little bit annoyed with me that 
I, I looked at him too much a little bit and we had a little tussle for a while of like, you know, Laura, you're a squash player, like, you know, kind of, you've got to lead that bit and did it. But I, mm-hmm. I loved it. And, and, and that's where I'm not sure how much that was in me as a talent. Um, because I know other players would, would go crazy with that. They would go crazy with the fact that every single kind of minute of the session was prescribed, but I, I lost myself in it and I would get up and I would like, no, I'm there today. I'm there. And I was organized and planned and, you know, people would always be like, you know, if I, if I messaged them two days before for a hit, they're like, what's happened? Are you like, why are you so disorganized? Or when I, when I'd first message someone and say, can you play a week in, you know, two, 10 in 10 days time, they'd be like, I've got no idea what I'm doing then. Whereas I, you know, I like to have it all planned. I didn't want to miss an opportunity to hit with someone or train with someone because I hadn't booked it in. Mm. So yeah, just being able to stick to it where do you think that came from out of interest because obviously with someone like mark prescribing it to you great but was there something part of your your upbringing obviously your dad in the army were, were you quite obsessed might not be the right word but were you quite obsessed with writing your program as well or was it more from external influences do you think no, I think it was, I think it was probably me. Um, I like, I like numbers and I like measure measurements. Um, I like to have a plan and to, to spend my time well. Um, I like to know what, I'm, what I've got coming up, what I've got planned in, what I'm doing um, for the rest of the week. Um, and I like to schedule, schedule things in. And there was a, there was a, there was probably a, a real good period of time when you talk about the mental side where I had to work on that a little bit and had to soften around the edges and not become too restrictive because at the end of the day, squash is a game and you have to be adaptable and you have to be able to change on the spot when someone changes on you in a game plan, or you have to be able to kind of go on court with a game plan and be able to change that in the moment if it's not working or if someone changes something or you find out they're not moving to the forearm front corner, but it wasn't in the game plan to hit the forearm front corner. So it, it was something I had to work on it and, and also that attitude of coming back of um, I've done A, B and C brilliantly. I've stuck to it. I now deserve this because of that. Okay. And that's not how sport works. And I'm sure you've, you've heard that so much from people of like, I've put all this effort in and I've trained and I've done this, I've done that and I deserve more. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge part, you know, probably through my mid twenties where I had to drop it and be like, you know, just because I'm not, um, just be, just because I'm doing everything, you know, arguably in my head better than people who are higher ranked than me doesn't mean I deserve what they get. Right. And I had to relax around that a lot. Um, yeah. And it was a big learning curve. That's, that's, that's brilliant to hear because yeah, you do hear of, of athletes, you have like yourself really sticking to their guns and really putting their effort in and looking back at their training diaries and yeah, the whole um, entitlement is maybe not the right word, but you use the word deserve. Like, you know, you think you deserve to get that, that, that result. And can you explain how you then soften? Did you, did you do things? What was it more visualizations? Did you have a more of an acceptance attitude to things? Can you explain how you put in all that effort, but then had to soften? I mean, just talking about it helps. Um, you know, the one thing that I think is is huge and has been huge for me is is honesty, communication when it comes to not only honesty um, with the people around me, but honesty with myself. Um, it's a huge thing when it comes, you know, particularly to an individual sport. And I, and I don't think people and players are anywhere near as honest as they could be. 
Um, they're not as honest about what happened in that game, what what let them down, what didn't let them down. Um, the coaches around people are generally not honest enough either because they're worried about the personal relationship with the player, how it will upset the player, the player's feelings, um, not wanting to damage damage confidence. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it comes firstly from honesty within within yourself and being able to talk about that. And while I've always been open to um psychological development brain development and mental control um making myself better on the mental side you have that what comes with that is is an ability to say when things aren't going well and when things aren't working brilliantly for you and I think probably a conversation that sticks out the most is just talking to Danny about it you know and him recognizing that in me perhaps before I recognized it in myself Mm -hmm. where he would go you know, I'd, I'd have a great training session, great training block, maybe not get the result I wanted and come back and just be in a filthy mood because I haven't got my own way. Yeah. And that's why he would just be like, why, why do you deserve that? You, you can't just do the work over here and expect it to happen over here. You have to work on the link between it, working on it here and expecting it to happen. There's a bridge, like a link to each situation that it isn't just do that, get this. It's how do you get that to get to that? And that's where I started to realize like it's even when I was at the very, very top, you can't just go on court and expect it to happen. You have to respect your opponent. You have to set out a game plan and you have to make it happen because the work over there has to be made to happen in, in the actual match there, if that makes sense. <laughs> Completely. Honestly, like hearing you say that, thank you for sharing because because that the way you put it and, and you know, hearing from a, a world-class performer like yourself, it, the transferability of that workload and mindset into that performance yeah there's that that bridging gap and but that leads me really nicely on onto what I wanted to explore a little bit with your your I suppose your two coaches in your career DP David Pearson and then Danny your husband um firstly before I ask the question were, were those your main two coaches throughout your career would you say um um, no (laughs) um and I guess that links in a little bit to the mental side again and that uh, that mindset of realizing when something was good for me, when it had maybe reached the end point, the having the strength, um, the strength and the backbone to move on, um, to seek out things that that I knew and felt like I deserved. Um, yep. So I, I was originally coached, obviously, you know, as as all people are by brilliant club players. When I first started off, great great coaches that um, are still doing the grassroots stuff today. Um, but mainly probably from the age of around 12, um, Annette Pillin, yes. from 12 to 21, um, which was, I mean, you, you can't, you can't get to 21 and, um, you know, kind of a t- 21 years old and, and be at the place I was then and not put a heck of a lot of that down to her and, and, and what she was doing. And I obviously met Danny when I was 18 and, he got he definitely got more involved probably from the end of that relationship with Annette so um from more definite an influence from obviously 18 but as it got more serious and then obviously we got married at about 22 I think I was so um it definitely helped with that transition I left left Annette and 
started working with Nigel Willis for a couple of years, who's a great local player, deaf, really skillful, and actually built, I didn't know it at the time, but built his game on the back of DP and his his like understanding of playing that sort of era of squash with DP. Then, then moved from Nigel to work with Nick Taylor. Um, Nick Taylor then moved to Jersey. And so that unfortunately came to an end. And I worked with Phil Whitlock for two years. Um, and he helped me get from, you know, kind of like seven, eight in the world to two, three in the world, which was huge um, at that time. And this is where that honesty comes in because honestly, if Phil had coached me when I was maybe young, I don't think it would have worked. Um, I left Phil after two years because and I've told him this, like I didn't actually believe that doing what I was doing at that time was going to get me to beat Nicole to get to world number one. And that's what I wanted. And I didn't want to leave. I wanted to work with DP at the same time and work on the, those that different side of my game. Um, but unfortunately that's that relationship broke down. So then from there, um, only started working with DP really in a, about 2013, 20. Okay back end of 2012 and stuff and Danny's obviously been there yeah the whole time (laughs) that's um what fascinating timeline that you've just uh, gone through and and yeah I think the little bits I've heard from DP he gave a great thing on squash skills once he talked about you know coaches you know the relationship between a coach and a player is, is so important that you can have these open honest discussions and you can get them I think he alluded to the fact that <laughs> I'm maybe hashing his words a bit but he felt like the mothership and he said actually players going and getting advice from other coaches or other sources was no problem but you know when you create a good relationship with someone you come back to that mothership a little bit and I, I quite like the way he said that and yeah me as a coach reflecting what he says i end of the day, it's not about the coach, it's about the player. And I think a lot of coaches sometimes get a little bit um, maybe insecure if their players go off and see other players and or other coaches and come back. But I think when you create that strong relationship, that that's really powerful. And no, thank you for explaining that timeline. And I suppose, suppose linked to that a little bit, maybe Danny was a big part of this, but what, who do you think bought the mental side to the table the most for you? So because you, you are classed as one of the most mentally tough performers in your career, uh, in, in, in the sport and, and what you produced, who do you think was, was a massive contributor to that over the years? Um, I mean, I mean, it's just something, something that I've, like I said earlier, kind of something that I've always thought about. I always thought about the mental side of the game as being something that can be improved upon and worked upon. Um, I thought of it like, well, why would you, why would you strengthen your body and not strengthen your mind? Um, so I, th- I think I led a lot of it, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but you need to have the people around you who are also open to that as well. And like DP, you know, DP, I say that DP only coached me from 2013, but we had our first ever session together, probably at about the age of 14 or 15, because obviously he was national coach there was always an underlying tone of what he expected from the players on the England squash system. Annette was an England coach at the time. She was underneath that like filtered down stuff that was happening from that, that high end and DP um, led from above. Um, He isn't massively big on the mental side, um, but he's not big on the physical side either. In fact, he's not big on anything that's not squash. (laughs) That's great because Um, you, you know, I don't feel like we were necessarily encouraged. I don't think we were necessarily discouraged either. I think it became down to personal belief on whether or not this was something that you wanted to be good at and improve at. And of course, 
he the must you know the setup was set up in a way that you know we went off in in 2001 to our world juniors with a psychologist so on some level England squash are encouraging psychology psychological work from an early age and mm. And I just felt, I remembered um, Kirsten Barnes being on those trips with us Europeans, um, having sessions on national squads and just feeling like, wow, there's actually something I can do here to improve the craziness that's going on inside my head. I mean, am I the only one who's like got this craziness going on um, that I can help? And and when I say it comes from me from a really early age, I was reading autobiographies. Um, I remember Steve Backley's being the mm. javelin thrower, being one of the first. He had a psychologist. You know, we're talking kind of mid-90s, aren't we, sort of, where I'm starting to really feel like, actually, the people that I look up to who are winning Olympic gold medals and watching them, can they're working with psychologists and they're controlling their mind. And if you can do it in an Olympics, you know, for, you know, one, one throw of a javelin, then... I can do it over a squash match. So that was, there was always a curiosity there. It always came from me. And then, you know, everybody who knows Danny knows that he's um, into the psychological side. He's, he's so interested in it. And, and so of course, when, you know, we get talking about things like that, it just, it just goes boom, boom, boom. And we yeah. together, we work on it. So mm. in the early kind of part of our relationship, when he comes home one day and goes, I'm going to do an NLP course, do you want to come and do it with me? I'm like, yeah, I do. Rather than, oh, like, oh don't, don't go near the mental mm. side. That's not for me. It, it, you know, it's not taboo. It never was taboo for that sort of subject, if that makes sense. Yeah. It had a, had a, few chats with with a few other players and and they said similar thing there was maybe a taboo at one point um you know are you seeing a sports psychologist you must have a weakness you must have a flaw in your game but you looked at it from a completely different point of view a curiosity and that that word I'm, I'm glad you said that word because I always pick up on, on that word and you know that's something I think that I'm personally trying to instill in, in a lot of my players and my juniors is get that curiosity be curious about your mind be curious what you can grow away from the squash courts so that brings me a little bit into when you worked with DP, but by 2013. So you were the first ever English woman to hold the world title and British Open title. Yeah. Can you talk us through this period of your career as arguably this sounds like when everything came together? It sounds like that was your, your purple patch, your sweet spot, <laughs> would you say? Yeah. And yeah, can you reflect back at, on that year and, and, you know, even with thinking about that world title, winning it, but also holding the British Open at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I, I would I would arguably say, you know, as, as you do, you get these peak years, don't you? And and certainly from 2012 was my first world championship final in the Cayman Islands. Um, huge deal. 2012 when, you know, got got to the final, beat, beat um, Raneem 13-11 in the fifth, I think, in the semi. And it was it was huge. And probably I was a bit overwhelmed in that final, but that was 2012. And um, I went... I kind of just finished with Phil at that time and was starting to, yeah, kind of in this like in between stage and then came on board with DP and yeah, just bought in, just bought in straight away. And I think that's what DP, um, if you asked him, I think what I've heard him say a lot over the years is just, I, there was just complete buy-in. There's always been complete buy-in with me, whoever I'm working with, um, whether it's psychology, physical, squash, you know, anything, physio, tell me to do it, it gets done. And, and that's where it links back into that kind of talent. There's no question, there's, there's positive questioning to try and figure out why I'm doing it. I don't just yeah. do it blindly, but I do what I'm told if I believe and I trust in the person. So 2013, 
obviously unbelievable year um won british open um no one probably really expected that and that was good because i went into that final without any pressure then obviously world champs was the delayed world champs who actually won it in 2014 um even though it was the 2013 world champs and whole different you want to talk about mental mindset I mean, I feel sick just thinking about it. Um, <laughs> what, can you explain it why? What, why? What was going on there? Oh, and, you know, I, I, I saved four match balls in the quarterfinal. I won the semifinal against Raneem again um, back at the hotel. And, you know, Shabini beats Nicole. She's still a junior. And I've gone from playing Nicole in, you know, my second world championship final with no pressure in my mind to playing a... 17 year old junior in in a final of a world championships which is you know in my mind all mine to lose um Very pressure yeah unbelievable yeah um and then and then obviously going through that they, they were my peak years so from 2014 won probably my most amount of titles got to world number one january 2016 so from there, obviously coming into those peak years and it was 2016 January when I went to world number one, but in actual fact, you know, my winning um, US Open Qatar Classic final of Hong Kong was 2015 and then went to world number one in January 2016. So those those period that period between 2012 and probably back end of 2015 were, were definitely my peak years. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of late 20s I think by then maybe 29 coming into 30 um I mean it's so tough looking back because there is a lot a lot a lot of years a lot of struggles a lot of things that have gone well a lot of things that have gone right a lot of the feelings of I'm never going to get there um to obviously get into the world number one I think for me the world championships is so special and it does what it says on the tin but the world number one um winning winning those events back to back to finally get that world number one spot and doing it while Nicole was still in the mix and, mm. and Raneem and, and everybody was, was so special. And I think mentally, mentally totally different thing to holding it together for a world champs and constant, constant reflection, constant improvement, constantly looking for something to help me get better um, and like I said before, always thinking of the mindset of something that can be improved rather than I've got, I've got this mindset that I'm dealt with. I just have to do the training and hope it all holds itself together in the moment. Um, and that's what I see. I think a lot of people who have been scared to do the mental work over the years, it's like, no, no, I just train hard. I do what, and I, and I just get what I'm given when I go on the court. And I always felt like my mental side could be improved in the same way that I would go and lift weights in the gym. I wasn't lifting weights to, because I had a weakness in my body. I was lifting it to be stronger and to be better and to be injury free and to be able to hold up match after match. And, and so that required the same amount of training when it came to the mental side as well. Yeah. Geez. Love that. That's, that's an amazing little sweet spot. And and thanks for sharing. And I'm, I'm quite curious to know, in those matches and, and almost getting into the bit of the, the nitty gritty here, you know, your inner voice, your, your, the thoughts popping around your head, your four match balls down in the world's open fi- or world open quarterfinals, um, you know, getting to number one, having to win back-to-back tournaments. What, what is your inner voice like? You know, I, I'm, I'm sure you've reflected on it and, you know, I can imagine there's some demons that come in there at certain points. So how, how do you deal with the demons? What is your inner voice like? Because for me, I'm, I'm really curious of that nitty gritty when the pressure's really on. 
Yeah, I think the thing to say is that um, that people see me as being really mentally strong um, coming through matches. There's there's been a lot of matches that that I haven't been mentally strong. Um, I think that there's been a lot of matches where um, I have been mentally strong as well, and that people people are really quick to remember certain matches and they almost put the label on it for you. You don't have to really necessarily do anything. And, and it's hard, isn't it? Because from, from 17 years old, obviously the world championships as a junior was every two years. So I never actually got to play it when I was 18. Um, that match coming back from two nil down um, to win England, the title in the decider for, for the world juniors, I guess there's all, you know, you look back now and you go, well, there's something already there, wasn't there? Because I came back from 2-0 down. But um, I, that my, my inner voice, I always think from a really early age, has had um, a bit of a steeliness to it and a determination. And I get, and I get really angry at myself sometimes um, when things are not going well. Um, and, then I, and then that turns into a determination of, so rather than an angriness and just a quit or an angriness of like, I can't think of anything else, for example, the amount of times that I've sort of said in a roundabout way, these words, not these exact words, but something around this sort of sentence of, I'm not having it. <laughs> I'm not having it. I'm no, like, and, and, I, and that, that line just pops in this, you know, it's not good enough. You're an embarrassment. I'm, you, you are not going down like this. It's like, if I could picture it, it would be like a little Laura stamping her foot on the floor going, no, <laughs> like throwing her toys out the pram and, and something just clicks. Um, and that's what happened at the world juniors. I think um, that's what happens when, when I'm not playing well more than anything, not necessarily losing or, or not, you know, because sometimes it, it's, I can be losing and playing well and that voice doesn't kick in. But when I, when I'm not playing well and I'm not happy and I'm not satisfied and I, my brain is, is scattered and unfocused and unable to concentrate on the things that really matter that are going to win me the match. It's like, I'm not having it. And um, world championship final, at, you know, I think, Something, something. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And like eight all, I think, in the fifth, um, play four decent rallies. That's all I ask of you. Four decent rallies right here, right now. I mean, eight all in the fifth. Why have I said four? I've got no idea. I only have to win like, you know, three. I'm like, I'm, I'm like planning in my head that I'm probably going to play well for one rally and still lose it because it's a world champs final. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
So, and then I'm almost counting down. I'm like really, really good at flipping scores in my head. Was not always brilliantly at being a front runner. Um, really good at um, getting myself in a lead and then pretending I'm not. Mm-hmm. I don't know where that came from. So either, you know, um, being, you know, kind of being eight, four up in a fifth or fourth to close it out three, one, and I'm eight, four down just to really focus me in on a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah. And then there's been loads of times where I've just been, you know, kind of really rubbish as well. And, and that stubbornness doesn't work and there's no rhyme or reason. And, it was a, a match when when I played Raneem in Alexandria and I we'd had an absolute battle and I, I I thought that normally I could break her mentally or physically at some point by the time we'd got to about the hour mark and she just didn't go away and I had one negative thought which went why is she still so strong at this point and the match went five right. rallies bang and I'm out I'm, I, and I was around the back going I lost that match because mm-hmm. I had that one negative thought and I think you just try to learn from those situations and, you know, later found out obviously that Raneem was in, in kind of looking like she might go to world number one. And it just shows what mentally, how mentally deep you can push when you've got something so big there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It is, you know, we, you're probably massively aware of it. It's such a separating factor between the good and the great, you know, you at, at a certain level, uh, you know, arguably everyone within a few percent technically physically are, are close you know there's there's a certain leveling off but yeah it's 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 that it's that mind it's that flipping and it is great to hear how your inner voice speaks to yourself because it sounds a very authoritarian very demanding voice but it doesn't sound like there's a lot of negativity attached it, it it's it's a motivational voice at the same time so it's 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 saying what it is on the turn and it's going hey like enough like this this is where you're at now but it's also pushing you forward because and you might have had it or not but obviously that voice when that flips a little bit into that slight negative side it can unravel a little bit Um, and and did you work on your inner voice with with someone in particular or how how did that process evolve you think yeah um I think I guess the thing to say firstly is that the negative side of my of my voices um was always more before matches okay Um, and I think it's fair to I think it's important to say that that you know I'm never someone who would would go on court and go to go. Um, I'm going to win this match because I'm a better player and because I'm higher ranked and just because they're rubbish and I'm good. Like I, that would, you know. And I think arguably one of my biggest one um, one of the things I'm so proud of is the fact that I I, I very rarely lost before my seeding and particularly towards the middle end of my career. And I honestly put that down to giving my opponent a hundred percent respect because I always worried I could lose whether I was playing 50, 60 in the world or whether I was playing, you know, 15 in the world in like a quarterfinal, I was always worried I could lose. And so the positive side of that is that I always gave that opponent 100% respect. And you can't figure out um, mental strength, determination, figure out your game plan. If you've gone on there with a lack of respect for a player and then you find yourself in trouble on court, you can't rescue it in the moment very well, very often. Sometimes you can, but it's rare and you need your opponent to help you out a little bit. Whereas if you go on there with massive respect and then that opponent plays like the level you've set, then then you're there, you're set, you're ready, you're prepared for it. But if you haven't prepared for it, it's so hard in the moment to do that. And 
Um, a lot of that, a lot of that negativity um, before matches was mainly what I had to deal with. Um, like I've just described, when I'm on the court and I'm in the heat of the battle, I, it sort of was never really an issue. The negativity and the negative self-talk and the worry and the doubt and the expectation, that was what was all in the lead up um, before before tournaments. And that was what I worked on the most. And mm. I worked with, um, you know, numerous people over my career and, and, and Kirsten Barnes, who was our first ever psychologist as like going into our world juniors. She sort of said to me really early on that you're a, a bit of a positive negative. Okay. You sort of drive away, you drive away from, negativity so you you kind of want to want to win because you don't want to lose not because mm. you want to win and mm. so I always kind of knew that about myself and that always intrigued me in that hold on so there's there's a way that you can be here and that was at like a junior level 18 19 and, and it sort of sort of led me down a path of understanding my personality a lot and so I worked with a guy um, on the NLP side who um, called Peter McNabb who was also really big into the Enneagram. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that. It's like a personality typing and we, it's unbelievable really. And it's not designed for sport. And I got this big thick book and I read up on what my personality type was. And I think the biggest thing that that helped me do was understand the reasons behind my behavior, not necessarily why I do the behavior, but the reasons behind it. And so my personality is that when you look at it just from an Enneagram and it's not all just about the Enneagram, there's so much more. And it, it, rather than boxing me in it, 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 it allowed me to be free of like actually understanding myself. And so this personality type that I was, was about wanting to do things right. And I always want to do things the right way. And I'm not proud of myself if it's not been done the right way, which then links back into following programs and being organized and disciplined and, and so kind of understanding that and this voice. And so with this personality type came a voice of judgment a lot. So I'd understand that if I was being quite judgmental of other people, linking back into having this link of like deserving to do things because I'm better than what they're doing in, in, in a roundabout way, judging that what they're doing is not good enough and what I'm doing is good enough. I was, it was basically understanding that I was probably judging myself quite a lot. Yeah. That's, the more that's, I can be and the more yeah. light I can be and the less I can judge myself and others freed me up to not be so bound by rules and doing things the right way. Mm. That, that sounds unbelievably powerful what you discovered at that point. And, and were, you, were you, what, 18, 19 or were you a bit older when you came across this idea? Um, no, I was a little bit older when I started dealing with the Enneagram stuff Um but I think the 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 Kirsten stuff at 18, 19, where I'd started to really kind of understand the fact that there was a way that there was a way to be this, you know, wanting to win to not not fail yes. was was that some people some people aren't like that and that there was different personality types and and things like that. And then that obviously doing the NLP course that I did in my early 20s helped me understand that. And and that really broke down a lot of barriers about understanding. NLP is crazy because it's nothing to do with sport, but you learn things like phobia, phobia cures and and how you can manipulate your mind and anchors. And, and so I was just like, hold on a second. I can get myself an anchor that gives me a feeling when I'm on court. Yeah. I want some of that. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like, so the more you're speaking there, the more I'm thinking of 
how how we open the door coaches you're a coach now as well how we open the door to players to see that to understand their personality types because you know i think we all perform at our best when we're playing to our personality and what we like the best but you know if, if you've got a coach saying no play this way because you i believe this is the right way but it doesn't align with the personality you know you're going to be at loggerheads aren't you and it sounds like you really discovered that relatively early on in your career and would you it sounds like you would but would you recommend this type of reading and this investigation to the juniors that you work with yeah a hundred percent and the trouble is and i'm sure you know it's it's getting getting the people to buy in um I'm not going to lie, like it's hot, like you're shining a light on an area that you don't want to look at. And I don't know why. Um, I don't know why people don't want to look at it because, well, I do know why. I do know why. It's because you go in the gym and you just see, you just lift a weight and you, you see your legs get bigger and you yeah. can see it and it's visual. With the mental side, to figure out what personality type you are, you have to be honest. You have to understand why you do things the way that you do and you have to understand why you don't want to do things and towards the end of my career and this like it's all coming out now um towards the end of my career I started working on a little bit of the hypnosis side so I saw a hypnosis um a guy for a little bit of hypnotherapy um weirdly enough kind of links in strangely and really similarly to NLP mm-hmm. um not exactly sure even to this day whether or not I, I really b- believe I was hypnotized um some weird things happened I'm not gonna lie um but I tell you what I went in that room for two hours every fortnight and and bawled my eyes out wow bawled my eyes out and and that is not nice that's that's the key working mentally is not nice and and that's the thing that you have to get over um, straight away. Now now I know I know you'll probably argue like there's easy things you can do to start visualization, mm-hmm. affirmations, the simple stuff, opening up your mind, reading books, reading psychology books, da da da. You're tiptoeing into it. Now could I have done that hypnosis at twenty? Probably not. And I probably didn't have the scars that would make me bawl my eyes out because I think as you get older, we all go a bit crazy. Um, but I, I have spoken to a few players, you know, and, and different people and friends, and I've gone, go and see this guy. It'll help. They don't want to go there. They, yeah. they don't want to go there. It's like a nasty, dark place. And there's something in your personality where I, you think you have to educate people young that it's okay to go there mm-hmm. and, and shine a light on the things that are not painful. Because if you go and you bawl your eyes out for an hour and you feel like you've been hit with a bus emotionally for the next two days it is hard to get yourself to that office again two weeks later. Um, and that's the tough battle, I think, with the mental side as opposed to the gym side. <laughs> no, listen, Laura, thank you so much for opening up there and and, and um, sharing some real insights. Uh, you know, people listening, she, for me, for one, I'm sitting here just absorbing this and it just just your journey and, and the way you've gone through. And yeah, I think different part, parts of your life and your adult life and how your brain's changing, you know, you can't force someone to go down this path but I really like what you say about, you know, when you go to the gym, when you hit a squash ball, you get instant feedback, don't you? You get that feedback pretty much straight away. Mm-hmm. Working on the mind, it takes time and it, it you got to delve deep. And like you said, you might even have, need to go to some dark places and really understand personality traits and why you do things and the reasons behind it. So you shining a light on that has, has been massively insightful. So yeah, just a real 
thank you for that because for me, for what I've, it's it's opened my curiosity to go and have a look. Um, I've got a couple of questions from um, some players that I work with. They were super keen that you were being interviewed, and they're like, "No, my goodness, my favorite player." So, one of the first questions um, I've already got two, but I think they're really good ones. Um, this one is probably pertinent for where we're at right now. So. Um, player asks, is there any advice for juniors struggling with motivation due to the lack of tournaments and not knowing when they will play next? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. It's such a tough time. I think um, ultimately, I, I, come, I, I mean, looking at it from the mental side, it comes back as well to why do you play the game? Um, what what do you want from the game? Um, do you want to be the best squash player that you can be, or do you only want to play squash to play tournaments? Um, and I think if you can start to ask yourself some questions around why are you playing the game, um, what's your long term vision, um, it makes you excited for the future. And I think, like I've spoken to a lot of of, of the players I'm working with, Danny's the same. We've had a lot of conversations and it's a subtle change of mentality of trying to anticipate your own future rather than waiting for your own future. And that shifts a little bit of your mental side of like excitement, I think. So when you say you're anticipating your own future, you're excited about what can happen and how you can be. And, you know, do you want to step back on the court and and look different and play differently and be a slightly different person, an improved version of yourself? Or do you want to just kind of do nothing and just wait until you can go back on the court. And then that you're just waiting for the courts to reopen, which is not exciting at all. And in fact, the opposite of exciting is boring and painful. So yeah, I, it obviously depends on kind of what you're working on in your game, but you know, I've been doing a lot of remote, remote calls where you kind of go through a little bit of video analysis. Um, a lot of them, you know, a lot of juniors at the moment haven't even got like an area where they can ghost or do anything, but even just doing sort of lunges, getting movement patterns going, understanding that space around you, understanding your mental side. Um, you know, there's loads of loads of great books out there and, you know, picking up, picking up the phone and speaking to someone a bit differently. And I think the key is just, yeah, getting it down to a fine line of kind of like, what do you want from the sport? And then letting that branch out um, and, and be excited about that anticipation of the courts reopening. Totally. I, and, and, you know, I think words are so important and so powerful and, and, you know, investigating coaching styles and methods and, but you use the word anticipation and how you, how you've used that word and how completely reframes the whole thing. And, you know, you sound like you've spoken with Danny about that and yeah, to, to, for hopefully juniors that are listening, they can really resonate to that going, yeah, look, we're going to be playing again at some point. Let's not look at it. Like you said um, that we're going to play and we'll just wait till we play. It's that anticipation about what you can do. Um, yeah. And then the second question, uh, maybe it's a two part of this one. Um, what short term goals have you set for yourself? So I'm thinking of that question as maybe currently what where you're at currently short term goals, but also maybe in my opinion, I would like to understand what you maybe did as a, as a player as well. And when you were when you were peaking, when you when things were going well, what short term goals did you set for yourself? Well, I guess short-term goals like right now during kind of COVID times and now I'm retired, it, you know, really simple kind of try to get out of the house every day. Um, it helps. I've got a dog. So get out in nature, get some fresh air, try to exercise most days. Um, just I think refreshes your mind. It helps you sleep better at night. Um, 
and just and being accepting a little bit of the of the mood I'm in for the day. Some days I'm so productive. I've got, you know, things lined up and I, you know, I've got this going on and I the house is blitzed and I've, I've got some bacon in the oven and I'm trying a new recipe for dinner and you know, it's it's I've got so much energy. And then other days, um, like yesterday, just felt like this is rubbish just watch TV most of the day and I did get out for the with the dog I was like come on get out the house um and and that and and that's fine and I'm not having a go at myself for the fact that some days I'm going to be like that because I know that I'm going to have other days where I'm I'm a real pick me up so kind of going with the flow a little bit um always making sure that I at least work out or get out the house every day even if I don't want to because I think it's important for our mindset um But I think being a little bit forgiving and soft at this time is is important for your own mental well-being. Um, Great advice. And then when when I was back playing, I guess short term goals were just um, I mean, short term is 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 difficult because you're always looking ahead to the next tournament. Um, But I had a really, a really good way of um, following those plans. So I never really, because I had my week set out, like I explained before, I never really had to look too far ahead. I just got what was done in front of me. And I think that that's, that's important. Like Danny and I have spoken a lot as well when I was playing, but also now about all you can deal with is the moment that you've got right now. And um, maybe getting through the next hour is is the thing mm. to do. And that's the same when you're training. So whether it's a really tough session, you've just got to get through kind of like the next the next sort of minute, the next rally, the next shot comes back down. It's like almost practicing um, what you want in a match. Like, can you deal with this rally now, the next rally that's coming up? Um, can you deal with the next, you know, if you're doing court sprints, I started to try and think, well, if you start thinking about the fact you tired and you've got another three sets to do, you're not going to get through the session, but you can put one foot in front of the other, right? And you can put one foot in front of the other and one foot in front of the other. And before you know it, you've done a length and then two lengths and then a set. And Mm. that's always like a really, you know, it's really important to keep things a little bit short term like that and have little mini goals set. Um, So, you you know, set yourself a, a big goal, but then how are you going to get to that big goal? Like, how are you going to get to it in terms of writing down the little goals that are going to help you achieve that, that you can do things daily? And it doesn't make that big goal seem so big when you've just got to do the little ones that lead to that, hopefully. And um, so that was, yeah, that would be what I would say to that. Totally. I, I, to reflect a little bit what you said there, I think the big goal is, is for you to face in the right direction, but it's all those little process goals, your controllable goals that get you to then take the steps to that main goal. Uh, and I like that idea about facing the right direction with your big goal, but in simple terms, you might not have any control over your big goal. That's an uncontrollable. Winning a world title within reason is uncontrollable and it's so far out there, but what can you do each little step of the way? And and again, I love the the, the part that you say about just putting that one once one step in front of each other you know it's so powerful that and yeah the fact that you just actually committed to do it i think i think it was peter nickel said um when he was right at, at the peak and he was you know almost getting to the point of chronic fatigue and you know falling asleep on the stairs i think he had a statement going the hardest thing about training was tying the shoelaces so he believed that actually the physical tying of the shoelaces was the hardest bit because as soon as he tied his shoelaces, he was committed to the session. It was like, I'm, I'm doing it now. And I, I always use that little quote and I just think it's a real cool one to go. Yeah. You know what? You make that commitment, you take that extra step and it can just go so far in that sense. 
Yeah, yeah. So listen, um, I've got a few more questions. I'm being really greedy with your time. You've been absolutely amazing so far. I could probably sit and speak for a whole day about this stuff and there's a whole bunch I haven't asked you, but um, final few questions if you've got a few moments. Um, one one that I'm curious about, and again, this again, maybe links to um, COVID time. Uh, what drove you to continue when you had maybe lost motivation and couldn't see progress as quickly as you would have liked? So you maybe alluded it before that, you know, you might've trained and then expected just to play well, but when you've been training, but you haven't seen that, maybe that progress, whether it be physically, whether it be your shots, how would you keep yourself motivated? Um, yeah, it's a really good, really tough question. I, um, I think you I think you rely a little bit on the people around you to hopefully guide you and 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 make sure that you're on the right path and keep encouraging you a little bit. Um I used to I used to try and give myself little rewards as well for um getting through training sessions and um playing practice matches. I think it, it links into the mental side and that preparation for tournaments where um I think I'd like to think that I was a really good league player and um, a really good training training practice match player mm-hmm. because it didn't matter to me whether or not I was playing in Grand Central Station or on a backcourt at Chorley. Um, I didn't want to lose. Now I know I know I always brought a next level of kind of focus and discipline and will to win when I was on the big stage, but um, I very rarely lost to you know. There's a lot of players who never beat me on PSA. They also never beat me in practice either because I I, I was you know really determined. And that came a lot from Phil as well because he was he'd tell me stories about a young Nick Taylor that would come and play him and he'd give him two points and send him on his way or no points and send and then slowly but surely they came back and you're trying to obviously you know get the most out of it. And then I'd also. Um, set myself up on the ball machine a lot um, set myself targets. And if I hit targets, I'd buy myself, you know, kind of a treat, um, you know, right. a cake or something, or, you know, if I wanted a new handbag, I had to hit 20 in a row above a tin without hitting a sidewall or something like that. And I think it's a way, I guess, like what you just said with the Peter Nickel thing, it's a way to get yourself, you know, up for something when you're a bit down and you're also training the mental side as well, aren't you? When things are not, going well it's really really nice to go into a shop and buy yourself a reward when you've done something that you don't want to do and I'm always encouraging you know whether it's a new album of I know it's not so much now is it but an album of music or a um a new pair of shoes or a new handbag or just a little small like you know coffee and a cake after I'm not allowed a coffee and a cake if I don't do this so just just really trying to you know motivate yourself in a little bit of a different way nice cool um bringing us into maybe where we're at right now you know you've retired you you you, you've you've got a few real interesting um rods in the fire so to speak but in the current lockdown your workouts have been an absolute revelation for the players um the feedback i get from the players i work with they save your videos they're going back on them they really like them um you must be happy with how they've gone and 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 you obviously enjoying that process of those home workouts yeah, I mean, that's so nice to hear because you sort of put these things out and go and, and don't really know whether people are enjoying them or doing them. Um, oh, my players are doing a lot of them. So, yes, they're loving oh, them. Great. I'll maybe try and do a few more then. I never really know if. Oh, really? I oh, know. It's, yeah. it's part of some of the training programs I'm setting with my players. Um, you know, I go, right, these are maybe the four or five things I want this week. And they go, oh, but where can I fit Laura's sessions in? I <laughs> really enjoy them. So, yeah, so they're yeah. But yeah, the, been fun for the, you. Say that again. They've been fun for you, I assume, as well. 
Yeah. Um, so the England squash live Instagram ones that I did were really good fun. Um, Danny had his mixers on, which he's really got into his little bit of a little bit of DJing during lockdown. So we had a new mix on every week and he would do them with me. And it was a great way to start our Mondays, you know, noon on a Monday. And I did six weeks in a row and, you know, have to think about it and really tried to do it in a way that it was starting with a little bit more endurance, really going back ready for play with fast feet and, mm-hmm. The thing that I'm really, really into is, um, and I think I'm probably going to go more and more down this route as I coach, but I'm really into the movement side. Um, I've massively got into understanding and maybe didn't even realize how much um, the movement was a big part of my game. Um, When I first started working with DP, he said, you know, you need to have more electricity in your movement. You're a bit slow and a bit sluggish. And I've always been a bit of a powerful kind of like base base player with, mm-hmm. you know, just drive the ball through to the back, get on the volley and then try and play the simple drop. And movement was something that always let me down. And particularly when I was nervous, I would, you know, get real heavy in my movements and be sluggish and slow. And that was what he helped me with. And so um, now I'm working with players, particularly the girls, and we're on a low tin. I think the boys as well, it gets covered up a lot because of the speed and athleticism of the boys, but the efficiency of movement and holding that together over the course of a match, but then into the next round and the next round. And I I used the British Open in 2017 as as an example of kind of getting through, I think, two two Egyptians, Raneem 3-1 in the quarters, 2-0 down and winning 3-2 against Shabini. Honestly, if my movement wasn't as good, I'd have had nothing. I, I, I didn't have a lot left in the tank for the final as it was, but I, I found a way because I sat into my movement. And so you're like, I know you're going, she's gone ridiculous off track here, but yeah. I, I basically like all of my movements um, that I'm trying to do, I'm trying to come across in my, in, in my workouts. So I talk a lot about keeping your hips high, making sure your foot goes heel toe, So I hope that that's what's getting across. And I've really enjoyed the fact that during a workout that's a circuit, and it'd probably be a bit of advice to juniors, it'd be don't give up on the fact that this is to help you squash. So whether you're doing a lunge, a reverse lunge, a side squat, a split squat jump, are you distributing weight well on the front and back foot? Are you getting to know the space around you? Are you anticipating the floor? Are you using the floor to give you some energy back rather than all the energy just thinking into the floor? All of these things that I've become so passionate about and, I think it shows that you can get people with pretty average swings that move well and they're, they're, they're a lot higher ranked than they should be rather than a silky smooth swing and someone who doesn't move that well, it, it's not the same. Yeah. So obviously then, you get both movement swing, you're yeah. onto a winner, but movement yeah. for me and particularly in the women's game and defending the low attacking tin is, is, is so massive. No, you, you're totally talking my language there. It's something that, that as a, as a younger coach, I really looked into it and I'm still developing the whole movement side. And yeah, just on a personal level, when, when I moved to the UK from, from Zimbabwe, yeah, I would think I was lucky enough to play so many different sports that my movement was naturally quite good. I didn't hit the ball very well. I didn't have very good tactics, but I was punching 50, 60, 70 places above my weight on the world rankings because my movement was efficient, light, agile. And yeah, so then, you know, you learn the racket where with it it then becomes a real powerful combination and i personally started to almost address movement if someone comes to me for a lesson i go you know what the first three or four lessons we're going to get your feet going right you know your swing will will get there so yeah you're definitely speaking my language and and to hear you say that is 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 powerful and you've almost asked my answer my next question but it's linked as your coaching career 
what lessons would you give to the youngsters knowing what you know now? It sounds like obviously movement's a real high one. Um, but yeah, reflecting back at your career, what lessons do you think you're going to be really trying to pass on to your players? Yeah, I think probably probably a lot of what we've spoken about today, about not being afraid of the mental side. Um, already in lockdown, one of my biggest things has been, you know, providing some books to read. And it's tough because you've got to try and match the book with the personality. You know, one book that you'd give to one player wouldn't, it's just not going to work for them, mm-hmm. uh, for another player. And I think um, sort of understanding and exploring the mental side, understanding and exploring your own mental side, Um and just, just, yeah, really buying into the movement and, and the technique. And I'm, I think the one thing I've perhaps realized is, you know, a lot of coaches that I see, they go get the ball there, get the ball to target there. And I'm a lot more around, yeah, but how do you get the ball to target? Um, so with, you know, with DP and with my own game, we were always working on like drift of ball and shape of ball and, you know, the wrapping up of the ball. And that's what I feel like a lot of people are perhaps missing that I, that I maybe didn't even really understand myself that mm. Shabin is unbelievable at it. And you don't see it until you're on court and you feel it whether the ball's always drawing away from you. And it's like, it's like she's playing chess. She's just maneuvering you a tiny bit out of position every single time until it just is too far away and a lot of players would have said to me when I was playing like oh I knew you were good but I, you know I thought I had a chance I thought I had a chance really and then you get on there and it's the quality of the ball it's the ball dipping into the back rather than sitting up out of the back and mm. the drop shots sort of going the, the men are amazing at it it can be that high on the front wall but stay so short and so tight and the margin for error and understanding how you get the ball where it is and And I think also like one last thing to sort of say as well on the mental side is that the efficiency of movement and being able to stick to a tactical plan is is massively, massively linked to the mental side. So if you're rubbish physically, I don't care how strong you are mentally, because as soon as you get tired, your mind goes It gets drawn away into like the pain, the tiredness. How am I going to carry on for another two games? They're too good. I can't get in front of them. Before you know it, you're thinking all sorts of mess. And that there's no amount of there's no amount of mental work going to fix that. That simply comes down to getting fitter. And the more fit you are, the more you can concentrate on what it is you're trying to do on the court, because if you can't think about what you're doing on the court, you can't do what you're trying to do in, on the court. So I spoke to a psychologist once who watched me play Nicole early twenties. And he said, you haven't got a mental issue. You've got a physical issue. Oh, wow. Okay. You can't, deal with, you can't deal with Nicole's physicality until you can deal with her physicality. Then you can, then you can have a go at trying to win. And it was like the big, again, honesty, it was like, I didn't want to hear that at the time. I'm like, no, no, I'm not beating Nicole because there's a mental issue. I've got, a, you know, someone, she's always beating me. I've never beaten her. It's a mental issue. And then you look into it, you're like, yeah, of course, I I'm not fit enough. She, she's extended the rally length of the women's game by like four or five shots a rally, mm. every rally. I can't deal with it. And we get to like one all and six all and I fall off a cliff. It's not a mental issue. It's a physical issue. So I think a lot of my mental strength came from movement efficiency, working on fitness and being able to sort of, you know, keep mentally strong when I was tired. 
Yeah, that, that, that mind-body connection, they, they, they feed off each other. I think they both fuel for each other. It's, it's like you're just adding more, more gasoline to that fire. The body gets better and the mentally you find this confidence level. Oh, confidence is good. Actually, you know what? I'm going to maybe train a bit harder or do stuff I've never done before. And yeah, I love that idea when you can get them working in synergy. And yeah. very finally, uh, you told me that, and, and I've seen on your Instagram, and I'm sure a lot of your followers have, you're in a interesting process in, in, in your personal life, recording an audio book at the moment. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know what's next for you, what's coming up. Obviously, COVID is, is getting in the way, but can you expand what's happening in your own personal life? And yeah, really interested about your book. Yeah, just um, kind of, you know, setting out on my way coaching and it was, it's been great. I feel like I've got um, a bit of a step on a, on each rung of a ladder because I'm sort of just coaching out of my David Lloyd club, um, which is really nice. Some of the members, kids and things like that. Um, involved in the Lancashire Junior Squash setup, so like county level, little bit of work for England Squash, and so like national level, and then working with a few pros privately. So it really keeps you honest. It keeps you having, you know, Danny said to me when I started, some of the biggest coaching learnings that you'll sort of make are the ones where you've got to try and get a club player better because the goal is bad habits, and but they're super keen and. And it's true. And trying to improve a club player makes almost improving pros like easy because they get it so quickly. Most pros just get it. Um, So it's education and trying to educate myself around coaching and and taking what I learned on tour. And I'm also working for head um, as a as their pro player consultant, which is brilliant. So getting to know the marketing side a little bit more, having a look at contracts, trying to recruit players um you know just just exciting stuff and they were so supportive of me as a player and a brilliant company and big company so I'm excited to still be involved with them and yeah the book um sort of wanted to write a book for years and obviously it made sense when I retired and then it's pretty much ready it's just COVID and wanting to promote it and wanting to get it out there and you know I'm not um, a celebrity that's going to sell the book itself. So I'm going to have to do a bit of promotion around it. So I want to wait till the right time. And luckily the publishers that I'm involved with are um, a mu- mainly music production. So it's the first book they're going to have ever done, which is oh, exciting. Wow. But I, because of the music side, they've got loads of sound studios and we've been in doing the audio book. So the brilliant thing about the audiobook is that it's going to have guest chapters and the book's got guest chapters rather and each chapter is going to be read by the person themselves in the audiobook which is a great um, great addition and then at the end of each chapter we'll have a little Q&A with that person so it's a little bit of a nice addition to the to the paperback or we're not quite sure paperback hardback yet um, but that obviously won't be in the full book but you'll get pictures in the full book so I kind of wanted something on both sides and yeah, just waiting for the right time to release that, hopefully COVID permitting kind of maybe around the British Open. Before the British Open, obviously, I, I don't want to kind of, you know, be doing too much around people playing in the British Open. But with the with the right sort of timing, a couple of weeks before and then maybe sell a few copies and sign some stuff at the British Open. And um, I'd love to do it there where I had so much success and so much fond memories as well so um kind of sat on it at the moment <laughs> are you are you allowed to say what the title is and what the book is about a bit more detail on that or is it all clandestine at the moment no i think so i, I think so um so the title is going to be all in um which which just i mean everything we've spoken about today is pretty it, much yeah like you know kind of was and i'm all in with everything that i do and 
I actually wanted to call it find a way because Jade used to call me like Laura find a way because I used to find a way when I didn't have, you know didn't have the right to but um I read such an amazing book by Diana Nyad it was called find a way and right. I took that title out of it really but that's a great book for anyone who wants to um you want to work on the mental side. I know I'm going on a bit here, but there's several books that I can recommend if you want to like figure out. I, I, I love book podcast recommendations. So yeah, anyone listening, please hit us with your best books you can recommend. Yeah. Um, well, Diana Nyad was um, an unbelievable, like long distance ultra swimmer um, who had to deal with box jellyfish and sharks in some of the most dangerous waters and swimming for, um, I think almost like two days, three days dealing with cuts and saltwater rashes and things like that and delirium and all of that. I mean, so, so you want to talk about mental strength and having been able to get through a squash match, read that and you realize that it, it's not that difficult. Um, Tyler Hamilton's book. I don't know if you've read that, the secret race. I mean, that got me through a tournament. He, he basically ground down his back teeth. He was in so much pain getting through a race. I'm like, I've never ground my back teeth down. So I think I'm like, you know, got a bit to go on the mental capacity. Um, Chrissy Wellington and that won me like two tournaments um, reading that book she basically um, Iron Iron Man world champion um, couldn't feel her legs at times I'm like literally I can still feel my legs I can still go Um, Relentless by Tim Grover was like just you know being a cleaner in your own right and I think that won me the Macau Open one you know I'm like I'm a cleaner I'm in it you know it just Wow. just brilliant there's so many books and actually that so when talk about the book um that's the title all in and the book itself is just about my squash mainly a little bit about my childhood um it links in great with the guest chapters of which kind of you know mark dp jade caroline plastiotherapist danny um peter McNabb, who we've spoken a lot about um you know, all of these different people are going to come together. They offer a different light. And and then within the book as well, um, talk about some of the training that I do and a lot of the, the dynamic of getting over and trying to beat Nicole and the, the challenge that that provided and then dealing with the Egyptians and um, from there and some some stories hopefully about, you know, what, what it was like away from the court at tournaments Um and also at the end, I want to actually just touching on the book thing, like provide a list of all of the books that I've read. Cause I think it's so, you know, when I, when I wrote them all down, just sporting books that are um, associated with getting my squash better over a hundred books for the, my career. So there's a lot, a lot out there. Some are spiritual, some are sports psychology, some are autobiographies, like, but we're not including novels or anything there. We're just talking books that I've read to get my game better. So that's all going to be in there as well. Presence. Process. Persistence. The essence of Squash Mind. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Manny's and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code presson25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press On Falsies. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.